If you will look with me, please, to the book of Second uh, Corinthians, uh, chapter number 5. Uh, I want to spend some time this morning, and I'm going to tell you we're going to be in this passage today, next week, and Sunday as well. Uh, we start a series this morning. You saw it. Uh, uh, you heard Pastor Barry reference it. I'll talk more about it in a minute. These are what's being mailed out. It's called the offense of the gospel. Our objective in this series is to clearly define the gospel, but specifically the scandal or offense associated with the gospel. And it really becomes clear, the offense, the scandal, becomes clear when you understand the gospel for what it really is. Today, our goal is more specifically to define sin, man's sinfulness. Because in order to fully understand the gospel, you have to first understand your own sinfulness. You can never appreciate the power of the gospel without clearly understanding your need for it. So we have to begin with sinfulness of humanity. So here's our text for the entire series in a nutshell. We're going to look at it, uh, break it down, pick it apart, and hopefully commit it to memory by the close of our Easter weekend. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to pick up in the middle of verse 20 and and take uh, verse 21. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. As a church, one of the difficulties we face as a leadership team, especially during this season, is expressing the timeless story of Easter in a fresh, engaging manner In a society full of skeptics that are commonly asking about Easter, okay, I've heard that, now what? Many of us who are very aware of our own sinfulness, we're very aware of our own unworthiness of God, we don't ever tire of hearing the story about His crucifixion and His love that drove Him there and His resurrection and the hope that is connected to that resurrection for our all of eternity. I mean, for those of us that are aware of our sinful nature, we're aware of our unworthiness before God and aware of the love that pushed Him to extremes so that we could be saved from ourselves, we never tire of hearing that. That story. But to many other people, Easter is just the same old, same old. Church attendance will soar all over America while people make their once a year pilgrimage to a house of worship. And so that the church doesn't disappoint them, many churches will spend fortunes on marketing and, and pageants and cantatas and trying to make an incredible investment, one-upping last year's portrayal of the greatest story ever told. Those disconnected from church and probably a whole lot of bored Christians are asking, what are you going to say this year that I hadn't already heard before? In an attempt to answer that question and to address that dilemma, maybe we raised more questions than we answered when we chose this topic. The offense of the gospel, because somebody who's heard the preaching of the gospel and heard that word thrown around wonders how in the world could the gospel be offensive. Because the very title of the series is a paradox. I mean, the word gospel means good news. So our title of the whole series, in essence, literally reads, The Offense of the Good News. So how could anything good be negative or offensive? 
that leads us to a, probably a better question. If we don't understand how the gospel or the good news is offensive, maybe we don't truly understand it at all. And maybe that leads us to an even better question. Maybe the unspoken question all of us may ask, what does a story that is 2,000 years old have to do with me today, right now, in 2012? And there are a couple perspectives to answer that question. One perspective would be, well, you know, I've got it all figured out. I've already heard this before. Let's move on to something that is more relevant to my life today. i got that topic. Tell me something in the Bible that helps me in a more relevant way today. And then there's another approach. You could say, I'm doing fine without understanding the gospel thus far, so why should I choose now to begin to conform my life to such an old myth? That may be where the offense begins. Because despite the hours you've invested in church or invested in giving to the church or the Sunday schools you've been to or missions trips you've been on or all the small groups you've led or other church activities, you can never mature past the gospel. You will never grow spiritually to where the gospel becomes old hat and you need to move from the gospel to some other deeper truth in the scripture because the gospel is the deepest truth the scripture will ever reveal to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses that issue. He tells them you will never mature past the gospel. Verse number 1, Paul says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. I preach to you past tense. You have received past tense and you have taken your stand present tense. By this gospel you are saved past, present, future tense. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Reference to future tense. Paul reference brothers and sisters. He's talking about the faith family. It's an address to believers People to whom he's already preached the gospel. People to whom he says have already received the gospel. People who are currently present tense standing in the gospel and it is their future hope. So why is he dressing them? He's trying to remind them of what they have already heard because he's saying you will never mature past what I've already told you. And if they don't hold firmly to the gospel that he has preached, if they don't get it, if they don't truly understand it, it is possible that they will have gone through all the religious motion and routine and believed in vain. And it's really sobering for me to think that you could go through all the routines and even believe, but believe in vain. So how do you believe in vain? Well, it's possible that the thin veneer of cultural success and acceptance allows us to hide our fractured, chaotic lives behind a religious mask of routine. And that part of us, that real hidden part of us, can only be exposed when we get close enough to the gospel to be cut by it, when we get close enough to the gospel to be offended by it, when we get close enough to the gospel to be broken by it, and get close enough to the gospel to eventually be reconciled to God through it. So what is the gospel? Well, listen to Paul as he sums up the gospel in a few quick, concise statements. I read it once. I'll read it again. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become The righteousness of God. It didn't say put on a righteous robe. It said literally become 
the righteousness of God. It's important that we understand the progression of Paul's conversation in this passage. He begins with God because the gospel begins with God. He said, be reconciled to God because it all starts with God. The holy, the just judge. We are all accountable to Him. It all begins with Him and the gospel starts with Him. In order for something to be reconciled, it has to have first been broken or severed somewhere in the past. So the gospel at its very core is a story of reconciling severed pieces. The language that Paul uses when he says be reconciled to God, the be reconciled language or the reconciliation language here is the same language he would use as if he was describing a rift that had developed between two friends. There has been a grievance, there has been an argument that has separated their relationship, but now they have been brought back together and they are existing in harmony together in a meaningful relationship. That is what that word reconciled means in that context. So he is saying be reconciled like that to God. And as the apostle begins to unfold this reconciliation story, as a part of that story, he moves on to reveal the greatest obstacle from man being reconciled to God is the issue of sin. He says in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. The issue with sin has to be addressed before any person can ever be reconciled to God. And then he moves on in that conversation and highlights God's plan. How's God going to deal with that obstacle? If sin is the greatest obstacle in my being reconciled to God, what is God's answer to that problem? And there in verse 21, you have Paul laying out the great exchange that the gospel talks about where we exchange our sinfulness for God's righteousness. This is what God says I want to do. God says, I know it's not fair on my behalf, but he said it in the scripture for our sakes, for your sake, for my sake, God said, I want to, I desire, I love you so much, I want to make an unfair trade. I'm willing in this trade to take your sin and I want to in turn give you my righteousness. I believe I can take your sin and not be defiled by it, but I can give you my righteousness and give you a whole new nature and make you a brand new creation. So let's make this unfair trade for your sake. I'll become sin for you so that you can become righteous just like me. I believe that we mostly agree with the gospel except on the concept of sin. That may be another offense to the gospel. The true gospel is more than some feel-good message or moral maxim we all live by. And it's like as many as a lot of people would try to diminish the message of the gospel, it is more than moving from negative thinking to positive thinking. The gospel truly offends because it points out the reality of sin as a condition of the human heart. The gospel is offensive to the individualistic, proud American because the gospel has the audacity to declare that you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And because of your own sin, you have no hope without making that great exchange that the gospel promises. So let me ease into the conversation today. I'm going to just kind of tiptoe around the tulips and ease into it today. You are a sinner. All right, so much for easing into it. So am I. Okay? At the very point that the gospel makes clear from the beginning is that we are sinners. 
All of us have this disease that we cannot avoid. It's in us. It's our DNA. It's been passed down from our ancestors. The gospel offends us because it doesn't give us a shadow to go hide in. It calls us out and demands that we be reconciled. You have to admit that your relationship is fractured because of your sin and admit your need for God, a God who is holy and just and perfect. So when you begin to understand your imperfection, your unworthiness, your sinfulness against the backdrop of His holiness, His righteousness, and His purity, you understand that He has to trade with us in order for us to be in relationship. Otherwise, we stay separated from Him no matter how much religious devotion and spiritual exercises that we go through. The great exchange is necessary for real relationship. I give Him my sin, He gives me His righteousness. So, maybe... Before we can truly understand the gospel, we have to back up a little bit and truly understand sin. Because if you minimize sin, you're going to minimize the power of the gospel. If you don't know the power that sin has on you, and you don't understand the power that sin has on the human race, then you will never appreciate the power innately held within the preaching of the gospel or believing in the gospel. So here is misconception number one about sin. Is it sins, plural, with an S, or is it sin. Did the gospel come to address our sins, our little acts of disobedience, or did the gospel come to address the issue of sin? I don't think we have a disagreement that sin exists in our world. Read the newspaper, check out the headlines in the evening news or whatever web browser you go to to check out the day's events. You will find there is an evil in our world that is undeniable. Sin is here. The issue comes when we begin to talk about sin being embedded inside of us. Now, as long as it's somebody else's issue, it's okay. But when, when the gospel starts putting its finger on us and telling us there's sin in you, not more than just the sins, the acts of disobedience that you commit, go into your heart, the very core of who you are, sin is embedded in you. We're okay with the idea of isolated incidents and occasional mistakes. But when sin is expressed as the very core of our hearts, some people become unsettled. When it's like a minor traffic ticket on an otherwise clean record, we can admit it. But when sin is the revelation of our rebellious heart, we're not just committing a certain act of sin, but it is the expression of who we are it is who we have become until we exchange our nature. Our nature is sinful at its very core. That bothers people when they begin to deal with that, especially in a very politically correct world. They don't want, when everybody gets a trophy and everybody gets a prize and all, they don't want the gospel telling them sin is the natural part of the human race. On the second floor of the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, there is said to be a large, flawless quartz. Uh, it's about the size of a basketball, a little bigger. It's said to be the largest sphere of quartz in the entire world. There's not a single scratch on it. There's not a visible mark, no pockmark, no discoloration. The entire thing is absolutely perfect. People often think human nature is just like that sphere. Every now and then we may smear it or get it dirty or it's sitting there over time, it gets dusty. But underneath the grime of human nature, they make this assumption that it is pristine. 
That all you have to do is keep the sins off. All you have to do is keep the dirt off. All you have to do is clean up the moral behavior. And underneath all of the dirt and grime of human activity, at the core of man, he is pristine. All we really need is an occasional dusting to restore us to our brilliance. But the Bible's picture of human nature is not so pretty. According to Scripture, the sphere of human nature is not pristine at all. The mud and dirt is not just smeared on the outside, but to the contrary, it is shot through to the very center. It is shot through with sin to the very core. The cracks, the mud, the filth, and the corruption go all the way to the centerpiece of the human heart. Therefore, sin is not just around us, and it is not just an act of disobedience. Sin is deeply embedded inside of us. Misconception number two. But pastor, I'm a good person. Let's address what the Scripture has to say about that commonly misheld misconception. We are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, the parents of all mankind. They walked in the most intimate relationship with God that anyone has ever known. God came down in the evening, every evening... And He walked with them personally. He took them out for a stroll in the garden every day. And we read in Scripture about reconciliation. And you have to understand, at this particular time, Adam and Eve did not know the Word. They didn't understand the Word because they didn't need to be reconciled with God. They were in this amazing relationship, this picture of what God originally wanted out of relationship with you and me and every other human being. Until they severed the relationship. While the opening chapter of the Bible is all about this beautiful picture of what God desires with man, this image of relationship, Adam and Eve mar that beautiful picture by stumbling into chapter 2 and living in disobedience to God. They choose, instead of relationship with God, their own individualistic, selfish desires. They became sin by eating of the tree that He told them not to eat of, lived in disobedience. And at that moment, sin embedded itself in the soul of the human race. And the first parents would then pass on that spiritual DNA to every subsequent generation that followed. That's the reason the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 3 says, By nature we are children of wrath. By nature. From Adam and Eve on, at that moment, sin became a part of the human nature. They passed it on to Cain and Abel. And every generation has been passed on to the point Paul gets to the book of Ephesians. And he tells the Ephesian church and us, by nature, we are children of wrath. Another biblical writer, King David, said it this way. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51 and 5. Did you get that? King David said, we didn't even make it out of the hospital nursery before sin got in us. It's part of our being. It's, it's not learned behavior. It's our spiritual heritage. Misconception number three. Well, I'm not as bad as people who... And they start listing. So you get in a conversation with somebody about the gospel like this... You start talking about the nature of the gospel, but in order to understand the nature and the power of the gospel, you have to first back up and understand the nature and the power of sin that is in all of us. And then, but I'm a good person. And then when you address that issue by the gospel, well, but I'm not as bad as, and the list comes out. I'm not as, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I've never committed murder, or, or I've never used drugs, or I've never embezzled money, and I'm not as bad as my neighbor. He abuses his family. And I agree. With the right comparisons, you look spotless 
My eight-year-old daughter, Addie, played her first year of competitive basketball this year, and she really did amazingly well. We were surprised. She was kind of natural at it. She competed at a very high level. She fell in love with the game of basketball. But compared to her, I am phenomenal. When we go out on the court to play at our house there in our driveway, I, I, you know, every now and then, you know, for her benefit, I back off and, 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 you know, and try to, but she's like, Dad, don't go easy on me. And so that just, right, I just want to know what dirt feels like. So when she goes up for a shot, I slap it across the yard. It just feels good. My game is flawless. I can, I'm unstoppable. I can make any play I want to make. Against my eight-year-old daughter. (laughs) The problem arises when I compare to somebody else who's better than me. Imagine if Dirk stepped onto my court. (laughs) The MVP of the NBA Finals last year. Then he would make me look like Addie. (laughs) There is no comparison between Dirk's ability and mine. The gospel demands that we be compared to only one. Not our fellow man, just the one. The one who is perfect, the one who is pure. True awareness of our sinfulness only comes when we see His holiness. Not in comparing our relative goodness to our neighbor's badness. Look at the scripture in Isaiah that is so often referred to in Isaiah chapter 6. The first four verses, Isaiah, listen to this amazing picture Isaiah has because he has this supernatural encounter with God. It's like the heavens open and Isaiah sees into the throne room of God. Listen to this scene. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other. Just imagine these six winged angels flying around the throne of God, calling back and forth to one one another eternally, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verses 1 through 4 are the beginnings of an incredible encounter that Isaiah had with God. And you have to approach the unfolding of this story with an understanding. Isaiah is the premier prophet of his day. He is synonymous with the message of God. It it was understood that when Isaiah came on the scene and opened his mouth, he was speaking for God. He was the mouthpiece of God to an entire nation. The spiritual temperature of the entire nation of Israel was set by what came out of Isaiah's mouth. And that standing before God afforded him two privileges. Number one, he was the advisor to the king and most of the powerful men in Israel. He was one of the most powerful men because of that. And he walked in the presence of great men. That was one privilege. But secondly, because of his standing, he was able to do all that was humanly possible to attain holiness by human standards. He memorized and recited every word and every line of the Talmud. 
He refrained from eating unclean food. He attended every temple ceremony. He lived up to the regulation of every covenant. He surpassed every other prophet and priest of his generation in his personal devotion. And if there was a man who was holy in Isaiah's day, it was Isaiah. And suddenly, this man who knew greatness on earth and had advised kings caught a glimpse of the true king. And in this supernatural vision, in the same year that the earthly king had died, what Isaiah sees in that glimpse of God's throne room is more majestic than any courtroom he had ever been in in Israel. He sees the Lord enthroned and His robe fills the entire temple. His voice, according to verse 4, literally shook the foundations of the throne room. There were six winged angels that circumnavigated the throne, eternally singing His praise. But as they sang and circled the throne, they did not sing about God's creative power, though they could have. As they sang eternally circumnavigating the throne, they did not sing about God's uh, power on an ongoing basis. They did not sing about the enormity of the presence of God, though they could have. They only sang about one thing. They sang about His perfection. They sang about His sinlessness. Around the throne eternally, the angels sang, Holy, holy, holy. And when they were describing the indescribable gift of who? Of all. The greatest God of all. They, they, all they could say about Him was, He is perfect. He is spotless. He is righteous. He is holy. Now Isaiah catches that glimpse. He sees it unfold like in high definition right before him. And after seeing that, it is only then that the holiest man of the day that had fulfilled every requirement of the law, had gone to church, had been to Sunday school, who marked off all the things that make us holy today, it is then that Isaiah said in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah caught a glimpse and recognized God in light of His holiness and in light of His perfection, the only honest response was his recognition of his own sinful nature. Isaiah in this moment realized that holiness is not, uh, is not just morally acting right. Sinfulness is not simple acts of disobedience. Having a holy life is exchanging your nature and taking on God's nature. And when he saw the nature of God's holiness, he said, I am unholy and so are all of these people that I do life with. We are all in the same condition. He realized that all of his training and all the participation that he had among elite men have ruined him before God because he is unclean. In 2 Corinthians 5, we visited there and will continue to do so. Verse 21 says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. For whose sake? For our sake. God is willing to make this unfair exchange for our sake. The gospel confronts us for our sake. The gospel calls out our sin for our sake. Not just the little inconvenient acts, 
but the deep embedded nature that is openly rebelling in us against the holiness of God to whom we're all accountable. The good news, the gospel news is not necessary if we can minimize our sin so that it's not really all that bad. One of the reasons that the gospel has lost its power in America today is because America has done a really good job of minimizing its condition of sin. And so who needs a gospel to transform a life if sin is not really that big a deal in our life? And I'm not talking about immorality here. I'm not talking about the, la- the choices of disobedience. That's the symptom of the problem that goes to the diseased heart of humanity. The issue goes deeper than the simple acts of disobedience. If eradicating sin takes more than just cleaning off the outside, then what is the solution? How do we, or more powerfully, more truly, how does God eradicate sin if it's not just cleaning up our actions, but it's truly our nature? It's an inherited part of our spiritual DNA. So how is God going to respond to that? Well, it's the same problem that a doctor has when they are treating symptoms that keep coming up in a person's life. They really don't know the root, so they keep treating symptoms until the symptoms no longer are getting better. They are getting worse. And it means they have to drive down deeper to the heart of the problem. And then they find that this disease that only was showing a few symptoms has found its way into an organ, into the person's life. And then the doctor is left with only one option. They have to remove the organ. They have to take it out. They have to transplant it with a healthy organ. There's only one solution. It has to be replaced. There has, the doctor has to find a donor with a completely healthy functioning organ who for the sake of the deceased is willing to, the diseased is willing to sacrifice their organ for the person that's sick. But that operation cannot happen unless the person that has the disease sees the disease, knows the disease, understands they're sick. And when they understand they're sick, and they understand that maybe the operation is going to be painful, but they trust the physician enough to lay down on the operating table and say, I need to make this trade. I know that I cannot live if I do not exchange this diseased part of me for the healthy part of me that you want to implant. So I trust you. I'm very grateful for the person that's willing to sacrifice their healthy organ for my sick one. And I'm very grateful to you as the physician. I trust you. So I'm willing to lay on the operating table, admit my sickness, admit my disease, and go through that surgical exchange where you take out in me what is diseased and you plant inside me that part of you that is whole. I'm afraid we have mistaken. Or even worse, minimize the disease of sin nature inside of us. We just simply think, you know what, these are isolated symptoms that we can self-medicate. We get enough of Dr. Phil, we get enough of Oprah, we get enough of the self-help gospel, move from negative to positive, and everything's going to be alright. What we're doing is self-medicating the active symptoms in our life, and we're not really addressing what the gospel addressed. And that is not sins we commit out here, it is sin that is a part of our nature. The gospel puts his finger on sin. God is trying to show us that there is something deeper that is wrong that cannot be downplayed or faked away. It is not your your hours you've invested in church or the dollars you've invested in the kingdom or all of the time you've spent in ministry or all the good moral living that you've convinced yourself to do. While all of that is important, it is not enough. The gospel offensively and aggressively places its finger on our sin 
but it is doing so intentionally to, in an abrupt, ferocious, and invasive way for our sake. The great exchange. You know, my dad had a heart transplant. He died in May. And um, I nearly didn't get the last 17 years of life with him because of the heart condition. And uh, I can remember many, many times sitting in a hospital as a kid uh, wondering if he was going to live through the night. And then the greater part of my older life, I never was with him. And I didn't know sometimes if he was alive or dead. And then Haley and I married 19 years ago now. And at, at, in the middle of our first year of marriage, he went in for a heart transplant. Uh, my dad was kind of just finding his way back to God. And um, I can remember the moments after the transplant when he first came to enough for us to converse with him. And he was all there beyond the medication. He was very weepy. And I asked him, was it the medication? And he said, no, not really. He said, it's the awareness that I'm, I'm a 50-year-old man and some 40-year-old man died so that I could have his heart. You know, Brian, you can give another man a kidney and live, but you give somebody your heart, you have to die. And they, he said, Brian, that man was alive when they took his heart out. He was on life support, and the doctors had told his family that he couldn't live probably. He would be in a vegetative state because of some of the things he had arranged and some of the decisions the family made. They were willing to take the heart out so that it could be alive and useful. And he had chosen to be an organ donor. He gave me a good organ in exchange for a bad one. He gave me life in exchange for death. And he said, I don't know that I've ever understood the gospel any more clearly than I understand it laying on this table with another man's healthy heart beating in my chest. He's given me another chance. And it was in that 17 years that my dad committed his life to Christ. It was in that extra 17 years that God restored my relationship with my father. And so I'm very grateful for the man of whom I don't even know his name died so my father could live. That is the picture of the gospel. You have a diseased heart. I have a diseased heart. It's my nature. I need to come to God and admit, Lord, you know what? Sin is not just a little problem I need to clean up. It's who I am. I just realized that. The gospel has made that clear for me today. That he who knew no sin became sin. So that I might become the righteousness of God. And the good news is, the exchange isn't, I give God my sin and He gives me a robe to put on to cover it all up. It's not just a covering. He literally exchanges natures with me so that I become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Does it mean I'm not going to, I'm going to live a perfect life and never have these little acts of disobedience? No. But it means that I then become this, I'm walking and daily becoming formed in the image of Christ. And then when I get to heaven, I will be perfectly held in that image. Until that day, there's this war raging in me. That's why it takes more than morality to get to heaven. That's why there's a cross. Because He, he had to make a way for the exchange. So I want our ushers to help me today. They're going to do something today and they're going to pass out one of these for every person okay um we're doing it different this year usually when we have an event like easter we promote tens of thousands of cards are in the back and we ask you to take a stack put them on the bulletin boards at work hand them out at school whatever 
that's not what we're doing. We're, we're giving one card to one person. And what we're asking you to do is instead of just taking a bunch of cards and scattering them all over the place, hold one card in your hand today, take it with you, don't lose it. We have enough for each person to have one. Pray over this card. Because the issue is not how many people we can get in the building. We prayed over those 20,000 mail outs and know that there's a chance that randomly a few of them people might actually show up at church. The greatest impact will be this one card you get in your hand that you pray over and say, God, who is the one that I'm supposed to intercede for for the next few weeks? Who is the one that I'm supposed to go out of my way and, uh, and, and if I need to, get them to church, pick them up, whatever. This is the one, one per person. I had a coincidental encounter, I believe it was divine appointment on Friday night with a man I'd never met. Built a relationship, made an appointment to talk again. He had a lot of spiritual questions, didn't know I was a pastor. And uh, the Lord spoke to me while I was talking. He's my one. I believe he'll be here Easter with his family. I really do. He hadn't committed to that, but in my heart, I believe he'll be here. His name is on this card. And I believe God will point you to somebody. While they're passing them out, this is what I know. I can't preach this message today under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And I am completely aware that there are people in this room today that have not made the exchange. And you, you need to say, you need to admit your diseased sinful condition. Climb up on the operating table. You're the physician, Father. I trust you. Will you exchange the bad organ, the sin nature, and will you place the... I need a transplant, Lord. I need to surrender my life to you. Would you make the change? Would I give you my sin? Would you give me your righteousness? And today you're going to have an opportunity for that to happen. And you say, but pastor, I've been in church all of my life. There are people that have been religious all of their life. But like the Apostle Paul said, it is possible for you to go through the religious routines all of your life and have believed in vain because you've been religious but never made the exchange. Make the exchange. I want you to stand with me all over this place. Prayer team, would you make yourself available this morning? As we stand and prepare to walk out of this building today, I want, if the prayer team would, would you make yourself available to pray with people? And I realize there are needs represented in this room today where people need a prayer for healing, people need a prayer for miracles in their job, and this prayer team is here to pray for believers who have all kinds of needs. But let me tell you this, they're here today as well. Because somebody in this room needs to make the exchange. I'm going to pray a blessing in just a moment. And before people begin to walk out of this room while I pray, there are men and women, there may be families, there may be young adults, teenagers, who, who've heard this message, have a clearer understanding of the gospel than you've ever had in your life, and you need to make the exchange. While I pray, I want you to let these people, I, you need to come here, let these people know, pray with me. I'm ready to make the exchange. I'm ready for God to put that unfairness upon Himself. I'll give Him my sin. I need His righteousness. And that's not the only thing we're going to pray about today. If you have other needs, these people are here to pray with you. But if you need prayer this morning, and I am convinced in my heart that somebody in this room needs to make the exchange today. We're not waiting until Easter Sunday. Today's the day. Father, will you let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do when the Word of God is preached. And whether it's somebody who's never had any understanding of the Gospel or somebody who's played games with God, if it's a prodigal that has walked away, Lord, would you let the exchange happen this morning?
And Father, I pray that miracles would happen in this altar this morning and over the next several weeks. May you bless them and keep them. May you make your face shine down upon them. May you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. These altars are open today. Respond as the Spirit draws you. God bless you.